Welcome to the Rethinker Podcast, asking the why questions to connect faith with culture. Welcome to the Rethinker Podcast. This is a place where we look at Scripture, God's laws, Jesus' parables, and other aspects of faith to kind of extract deeper meaning and, in many cases, put new relevance and resonance on uh, the faith that we believe in and ultimately the culture that we're called to engage. Today we are going to continue on this concept of cultural engagement, but we're going to use a little more scriptural support. In this case, we're going to dissect a parable of Jesus that I'm sure many of you have heard numerous times and have probably drawn nearly identical conclusions from after reading it. But like the Magic Eye print we've talked about in Podcast 10, we're going to push deeper than what appears to be floating on the surface. We're going to apply that new strategy of sight to this parable that starts off in Matthew 20. Now here's most of what's stated there. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. Again he went out about the sixth, ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing all around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And so he said to them, You go into the vineyard also. And then you know that they all line up at the end of the day and they're given equal compensation. Now, from a central point of view, the spotlight of this parable appears to to focus on the amount of work each group completed, contrasted with their equal pay at the end of the day. To that point, the parable actually ends, except in the King James and New King James versions, with Jesus asserting that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. But extending the camera lens back a little wider, a far more universal and historically relevant finding is uncovered. From that lens, we will unpack what I am calling 11th hour evangelism, uncover its critical historical need and address its currently counterintuitive approach and then expose the honorable and humbling position this group has been given. Because the 11th hour in this story was a very unique, something very unique happens in the 11th hour. The 11th hour group just didn't head into the vineyard. They had to be engaged. The previous four groups heard the offer, recognized some form of compensation, and went. But for the 11th hour group, employment called for a new method. The 11th hour required interactive dialogue, or what we're calling cultural engagement. Eschatology aside, I believe that we are living in an 11th hour society. And in response, it is time for a new paradigm in evangelism. What saved us, whether 1st, 3rd, 6th, or ninth hour, may not have the same impact on this 11th hour society. It is not merely new first to ninth hour evangelism tactics that need to be employed, but new methodology of evangelism that should be explored. Its genesis is the radicals paradigm shift from cultural relevance to cultural engagement. There are seven things in just three short verses that are highlighted in this 11th hour conversation. We're going to discuss each one of those and then present the applications for each as well. So the first thing, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. The 11th hour group had been standing in the same marketplace as the previous four groups. The 11th hour group was not disconnected from the previous four groups. They were an essential part of the equation. So what do we learn from that? The church must recognize that despite ideological bias, deviant behavior, or even gross character flaws, every individual is first and foremost made in the image of God. One of the problems with our past forms of evangelism, as we've discovered in podcasts two and three, 
is that we see non-Christians as sinners first, rather than as unique and infinitely special images of God. While the church recognizes itself as God's children, it fails to see large portions of humanity as God's creation. Good intention intended Christians often look down on those able to break addictive habits, engage in deviant actions, or those with ideological or gender preferences other than own their own. Our banner-waving animosity towards certain groups of humanity specifically and even intentionally strip them of their image of God heritage. This is a gross failure. By taking any such attitude, regardless of ideological, moral, or character difference any person has, we actually partner with the enemy of mankind's agenda, as you discovered in Podcast 5. The 11th hour evangelism message is not to condone sinful behavior, but is to understand it tactically as a strategy against individuals and ultimately humanity itself. It is recognizing the difference between identity and actions. Everyone is made in the image of God, but actions produce consequences often harmful to the individual, the generations, and the society, stripping away at the soul and spirit, often through the destruction of the body, as we learned in the last podcast on addiction. By empathetically acknowledging how particular actions and specifically their consequence play out on humanity, it shifts the church's reactions to sins from moral superiority to concern for the well-being of humanity. The church's focus in this 11th hour should be the evidential damage caused to those made in God's image, not merely the immoral damage caused by sinners. A recent Barna poll sadly showed that the leading concern among modern evangelicals was the need for stronger moral value in America. But until the church recognizes why God established certain moral or dogmatic boundaries, it is merely driving a deeper wedge between itself and the 11th hour society, because that is not how the landowner engaged. The landowner said, why have you been standing here idle all day long? What do we learn from that? 11th hour conversation began with selfless, inquisitive interactions. The beginning of the 11th hour dialogue began with a question motivated not out of control, but out of concern. Why are you still here? What is it about this message that hasn't drawn you yet? Often, the modern church holds numerous summits and roundtables and shirts in search of the best tactics to win or entertain people into its doors. From multimedia presentations to outside fairs and festivals and even string extreme sports expositions, the church attempts to bring in the somewhat disinterested masses only to bait and switch attendees into hearing about what they are missing. Instead, the church should also be asking society, what are we missing? The church must shift its evangelistic approach from speaking to listening and acting. Instead of preaching at the loss, the church must engage God's image first. It must meet the 11th hour group at its point of need, first finding out what those needs are, and then partnering with the group to see those needs addressed. Due to the church's apparent disconnect with this 11th hour society, it should not be surprised that the first dialogue of needs may not be strictly at the soul level. The 11th hour group is looking for alleviation to situations that are, by default, and we now know intent, harming the soul. Through self-centered, pleasure-first methodologies and advertising, isolative technologies and impersonal ideologies, the 11th hour group has erected powerful, self-sufficient barricades, choking out the value and need of the soul. But in doing so, it is decimating the body and the mind. Currently, there are more than 36 million Americans that suffer from some form of mental disorder or fear. 25% of the populace has some form of venereal disease. One in four women have been raped or molested. Cancer and diabetes rack humanity. Addiction in its myriad of forms is a staple in our society. And poverty and indebtedness plague multi-millions. Those aren't just statistics. They are your friends and neighbors, your family members, and even ourselves.
Our 11th hour society is looking for those who can address issues such as these. Now, how can we be so sure? Because they are flocking in mass to the false saviors of pharmacology, entertainment, government, and co-opted mysticism. Sadly, because of the church's often pharisaical nature, the 11th hour group may not want anything to do with the Christian's God, but they are desperate to rid themselves of the consequences of a godless society. Our relativistic society propagates its actions through the subjective mantra, I can do anything I want, yet it loathes the damaging objective consequence it cannot control, and it will go anywhere it can get relief without judgmentalism, which leads to how the landowner engaged next. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The landowner recognized the 11th hour group's personal sense of satisfaction, but was certain he could offer something better. When the landowner speaks to the 11th hour group, he asks them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? The word standing is the Hebrew word histemai. Its definition includes standing firm, unhesitating, continuing, sound quality. The 11th hour group personally considered standing unemployed in the marketplace beneficial to them. The landowner first and foremost recognized their personal sense of satisfaction and security, but he was also confident with his own offer. The Hebrew term idle is the term argos, which stands, translates as careless, useless, or lazy. After acknowledging their perception of the marketplace as quality and secure, he tells them that in reality it has been useless. Such a bold declaration requires absolute certainty in his particular offer and leads to a two-tiered application. Application number one. The church's failure to engage culture at its place of need has produced highly enjoyable and holistically satisfying technological and ideological competition. Because of the supposed lackluster evidence of our church's saltiness, the world has become a haven for comfort, ease, and technological dependence. You have seen this through the podcasts before this, that this outcome is often cataclysmic. But in the immediate moment, the world's offers are engaging, enjoyable, and sufficient enough for the comfort and ease of the average citizen. We now face a citizenry dependent on outside mechanisms for daily function and interaction. Americans watch over eight hours of television per day, spend countless hours in social networks, couldn't think of living without tablets or smartphones, and spend whatever waking moments they can in virtual worlds like the world of Warcraft. Regardless of the implications, society has grown comfortable in that state. It is merely part of the backsplash of modern life. The world doesn't feel it's missing anything and, in fact, turns the tables on the church. Like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress experienced through his venture through Vanity Fair, the world considers the Christian to be the one missing out on all life has to offer, which leads to the second discovery. Despite scriptural assurance that Christianity is the best way of living, the church's evidence is often grossly lacking. The church as a universal body of believers hasn't failed society, but church members often inept at living life with more zeal, richness, depth, and compassion and insight than the average non-believer can soil the power of the gospel. According to much of the culture, the church is grossly failing at living a taste-and-see evidential lifestyle. Instead, it is far often too content to criticize others for what they place in their mouths. The church must live a kingdom-focused life capable of producing such powerful evidence of Christ's love and the Spirit's wisdom that it silences every anti-Christian ambassador. The church must live the gospel, not merely preach it. The 11th hour society, rife with a myriad of suggestive, subjective voices, is looking for proof, not petitions. Mega churches and expository preachers may flourish if their sanctuaries are stacked with 1st through 9th hour groups. But without verifiable transformative evidence, the church may have fewer and fewer inroads into this 11th hour society. Why? Because they said to him, because no one 
has hired us. Now, that's not true. Those other hours, the landowner was out there, but nothing said prior resonated with the 11th hour group. Scripture makes it clear that the group had been standing idle all day in the very same marketplace. But under questioning, the 11th hour response was, no one has hired us. Nothing in the previous four petitions resonated with this group. It wasn't necessarily that they were adverse to employment in the vineyard. It was that they felt no draw from all previous methods of solicitation. What does that mean? The church must not merely uncover and address societal needs. It must speak through the culture's various voices. The 11th Hour Society is not looking for the church to repackage its evangelistic message in their language. The 11th Hour Society isn't necessarily even looking for the church. But if all truth is God's truth, then scriptural truth can be spoken and validated in the language of the domain in which it is applied. The church must avoid simply adopting culture to promote the gospel, but use the holistic biblical worldview to objectively explain, uncover, and remedy culture's most troubling issues and concerns. It is not merely theology, but biblical wisdom and understanding, which you discovered in podcast 12 and 13, that may be the foundational starting point for solutions in all of society's many and broad domains. In a culture that has distanced itself from its creator, the best its experts can offer is knowledge, which is rarely capable of transcending its particular sphere of application. For example, experts in law cannot often speak into another domain, such as neuroscience. Wisdom, or God's pre-fall standards, as a transcending and transformative force, become the lens through which knowledge must be filtered. It may be that the world will pay more attention to the church when, through wisdom and understanding, it can better explain and apply the findings and discoveries of society's many domains than any of its previously secular, knowledge-based experts ever have been able to do. But the church was never meant to do this alone. The church must recognize the holistic and transcendent power of wisdom and develop strategic relationships with society's experts in knowledge. This paradigm of partnership between experts in knowledge and leaders in wisdom will ensure the church won't dominate culture. Instead, it will help shape it. Through the correct understanding and application of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, the church will become the forerunner to solving the world's most complex problems, but in its own languages. It will rebuild the ancient ruins and be, by default become the city set on a hill it was always meant to be. But it must do so with the utmost sense of regret and present humility. For when the landowner questioned, they said, because no one hired us. And the landowner said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Of the five groups of laborers, the 11th hour was the pinnacle of humility and selflessness. While all other groups were promised some form of compensation, the 11th hour group, once engaged, went without negotiation or future incentive. They required no outlandish proposition, merely engaging dialogue. So what do we learn from that? The church must recognize its moral superiority complex may be both the world's and even God's greatest turnoff. Christians tend to see themselves as superior morally, philosophically, and spiritually. Despite our promised heritages as a heritage as the principal purveyors of truth, our superiority complex may actually turn God off. When the eleventh hour group receives the same compensation as the first hour, the first hour grumbles and complains. To this, the landowner refers to the first hour laborers as evil. Okay, now let's think about that for a minute. The first hour laborers had borne the brunt of burden of the scorching heat of the day, but the landowner still called them evil. Why? because their focus was internal and narcissistic instead of external and selfish. The first hour was given the high honor of providing the most benefit for the landowner. Instead, their argument for compensation was rooted in their own needs and based on their own previous accomplishments. 
Instead of relishing in their altruism, they remained egocentric. The attitude of the first-hour laborers reflected in part their perceived value of the landowner and his customers. We can see the same understanding through the older son and the prodigal son story. We must keep our hearts and minds focused on Christ and our able hands and loving eyes all on the people around us. The 11th hour group's aversion and hatred to Christians may be due to the fact that our failures have led to the consequences they must now endure. Because the church has at times been eternally elitist, focused, judgmental, and morally driven, the world wants little to do with Christianity, apart from an open hand during environmental disasters or the occasional bandage when times get personally trying. Scripturally, we are assured that the, when the world acts worldly, it is operating inside of its own nature. To blame the world for acting in its own inheritance is like attacking a lion for being a carnivore. Instead, the church should humbly and compassionately recognize that because of these failures, society's lions are now feeding on their own flesh for sustenance and satisfaction. The world is desperate for pleasure, but it is helpless when it comes to the consequences found in many of these pleasurable actions. The role of the church, regardless of its first to ninth hour failure, is to display a reality so wonderfully fruitful, so radically winsome, that the world intentionally changes its harmful yet pleasurable direction and follows a different course. Our own failures have given full access to the intent of worldliness, death, destruction, decay, and misery. Worldly actions are part and parcel with unsaved humanity. Damaging consequence, however, is not God's intent for his image, but both come hand in hand. The failure of the church to remain fully salt and light has led to the gross destruction of much of the rest of humanity, body, soul, spirit, mind, family, community. The church to much of the culture remains morally elitist, while the world still embraces sin's pleasurable intent. Neither side recognizes worldly action for a strategic consequence. And if we are honest, the blame should tip further towards the church, for its failure to act according to its intended nature has led the 11th hour society to rush headfirst into its own destructive inherency. The 11th hour group isn't strictly looking for compensation for itself. Its concern is on the alleviation for its fellow man, the environment, and other effective issues. It has been riddled with the consequence brought about by our lack of evidence and often hypocrisy, and it wants to see something done about it. Instead of launching attacks or boycotts, the church must first recognize its own failures, humbly admit to its primary role in the degradation of our society, and begin to partner with the 11th hour cohort for positive, transformative change. Because if you pay attention in this passage, all other groups were called, but the 11th hour group was chosen. All other groups were presented an offer and either took it or negotiated for the best terms, but the 11th hour group appears to be special. It was given equal standing. The statement is, the last shall be first. Despite their look, attitude, character, and temperament, the church must recognize that the currently unsaved might be God's greatest treasures. As current believers, we have come into this fold in the earlier hours, but it may have been for the purpose of this group that currently wants little to do with the church. There must be a radical humility from the currently saved to those in the 11th hour. Our arms must be open and accepting. Our posture must be that of support rather than just instruction. Our voice must resonate with the culture, and our fruit must be by far the most delicious on earth. Should we continue to attempt first, third, sixth, or ninth hour evangelism, our solicitations may both fail humanity and the God who has chosen this group for his special purposes. Now, eleventh hour evangelism is not preaching a watered-down gospel. It is swallowing the holistic biblical worldview whole and allowing people to see the power through the visage of transformed individuals and eventually communities and nations. 
It sees all people as images of God, not select people as numbers for a church or denomination. And most importantly, it operates under the radical presupposition that if applied correctly, the gospel will cause all arenas of human existence to be holistically transformed in far greater measure than its current experts claim possible. It doesn't wait for the future kingdom, but attempts to bring the kingdom to earth. It believes that man should be made fully alive so that he and the rest of the world can then see the glory of God. It recognizes the weight of its current responsibility and past failure to this 11th hour society while fully grasping the power of its own offer. While the believer comes to God as a son and a joint heir, he comes to the 11th hour society as both a sage and a servant. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This was a little long, but you can probably understand why. I hope that it has inspired you, challenged you, provoked you, and given you a little insight into both the power of who you have to be and the responsibility of what we have to be to this 11th hour. Thank you very much. Uh, There's a couple ways you can reach out to me. You can find me on Facebook, email, and Twitter through my website at davidwlitwin.com. I love to engage uh, both on this podcast or any other podcast, so feel free to I hope you have a glorious day or evening, depending on when you listen to this. And just remember always to live inspired.